0: Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Dellingball. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special (laughs) guest, but I really am. It's my old friend, Simon Elmer, of Architects for Social Housing. Well, Simon, it's weird. I call you my old friend because you've been on the pod before. But I reckon there would have been a time in your life when you would have thought I was a complete wanker and or at least your ideological opponent, because for years I I used to think of myself as being on this thing called the right. And you, I imagine, thought of yourself as being on the left. And I think in our different ways, we've both come to realise that those concepts are just illusory
1: ones designed to, to divide us. Hello James, thank, Lovely to thank you for having me back, it's lovely to talk to you again. Um, much worse than that James, a few years ago I didn't even know who you were, which is even worse than yeah. thinking you were on the right, um, as, as you didn't know who I was either. Um, yeah, but, but yes, I mean, uh, I did an interview a little while ago and I was, I was reflecting on the fact that one of my, one of the people I published an article with is Conservative Woman, <laughs> which I think my friends would have found, you know, very amusing a few years ago. Um, I think because of the, you know, we talked about this last time, the work I did with Architects of Social Housing, which is based in London, most of the work we did was against Labour councils, demolishing council estates, Mm. uh, which is primarily what they do at the moment. So my belief in any kind of opposition between at least the official left and the official right died, well, well, before this, I think, in a way. I was was very beginning to doubt that. I think I I still had a bit of faith that they were non-Labour-affiliated left organizations but my faith in them has also disappeared with their uh their complete collaboration with what's been going on over the last three years yeah
0: yeah exactly i think it is we probably made this point last time it's not yeah. really about left v
1: right it's about them v us and
0: yeah, they are few. The wrong, are
1: many but 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 the, they, extraordinary levels of authoritarianism that's happening at the moment i mean there's there's three things the state is becoming more authoritarian um, the global technocracies running the state or telling the governments what to do are becoming totalitarian, especially in the new programs and technologies they're implementing. Um, and I'm kind of thinking a word for what's happening to the corporate world, and I think it's anarchism in a way. The corporate the corporate world doesn't even have any kind of oversight from the state or anyone else at the moment. So those sort of three elements, I think, corporate anarchism, state authoritarianism, and I guess technological totalitarianism digital totalitarianism well
0: of course I was thinking about the corporate anarchism we've we were, were. this is what Hollywood does it warns us about these things oh. um, the revelation of the method predictive programming oh. and Blade Runner was really all about that wasn't it the world was run by these these mega corps and we're really feeling it now I, I really get the the thing I really get feeling I get from from the corporate world is it, it despises us it, or if, if it even, even considers us at all, I think, I think it doesn't even, even think of us as, as counting for anything. It just, it just does its thing, which is bizarre when you think that these businesses notionally started out as creating products for our delectation, if you like. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, wonderful, the, the wonderful belief system that one used to have i used to have that that there was this, this system called the free market and that <laughs> companies competed yeah. to provide products for consumers yeah. uh, and and that whichever one provided the best product at the lowest price would thrive while the yeah. others would go under in this process called creative destruction, and that there was an endless cycle of of, of of gradual improvement of everything. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that, that that idea of the free market, which, you know, I think I have read this in my book, that if it ever existed, it was in a, a small German town in the uh, 18th century, and it lasted for, you know, a few decades or something. Um, yeah. It's amazing how that image kind of, it still retains such a kind of a purchase on people's idea of what capitalism is it, in a way. Um, you know, capitalism has has been for a long time and particularly is now is about creating monopolies. And, yeah, you're right about the kind of the, the Blade Runner, the Tyrell Corporation, which exists above the kind of the, you know, the underclass. who are kind of messing around on the street is a very good image of where we are now. I also think, I mean, <clears throat> the various analyses of commodities and what they are, um, which I guess have come out of things like historical materialism or what you call the left, um, have been that commodities actually create not simply objects, but subjects for their objects, subjects for their products. Um, recently, I've been trying to get people to get rid of their smartphones. Um, maybe we yeah, can talk about that later. Yeah, <laughs> I know, it's, it's absolutely impossible. I was giving a talk when I launched my books and the whole room was full of you know, like-minded people. Um, and I said, you know, does anyone want to get rid of their smartphone? And I just given a talk about how the smartphone is going to be the vehicle for digital ID, for central bank digital currency. For the our our you know obedience to um, environmental, social, and governance criteria, all these new programs for the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty. And having said all this for an hour in great detail, and, and I said, "And this this is the digital prison. It's in your hand. Get rid of it, comrades." And everyone was like, "Are you mad?" <laughs> and I published an article in The Guardian about this. And I think the last time I looked, it had something like 350 responses, which is kind of Quite a lot for the sort of stuff that I wrote and with a few exceptions, but generally the responses were, you know, nothing short of appalled. <laughs> you know, if I said we have to overthrow world capitalism and set up a, a communist utopia, people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but get rid of your iPhone. Um, and it really convinces me, you know, when people protest too much, you realize you you've really struck. Kind of a, a nerve there. Yeah, um, I, I've and, got I a story
0: that, that yeah, echoes echoes that, which is that I was recently in in Singapore, and I went that some some friends have this zip line company, and it's a, it's a really good zip line. I I, I recommend it. The one the, I think there's only one in 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 Singapore. Uh, anyway, you you get to the bottom, and in order to get your photographs. From your from your ride, you know, pictures of yeah. picture yeah. of you going yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you have to upload this app onto your phone, and uh, it, it then gives it access to all your photographs in your yeah, your yeah. phone. It's your life, yeah. and i th- th- this this young guy. <clears throat> was a nice guy, was, was helping me to install this. And I was thinking, well, hang on a second, why am I installing this app that I don't need to get photographs I don't particularly want of me going down a wire? Um, and I said to, I pointed this out to him, I said, look, this is just crazy. I'm just giving, this this app seems to want information on, on, on me. Yeah. And he said, have you looked at the terms and conditions for, for your for your iPhone? have you looked at the terms and conditions for yeah they they know everything about you you're selling your soul but he was present he, he said i know all this but he was presenting yeah. it into yeah. me uh, to me in a way that like yeah but whatever this is this is how it is what what mm. can you do he was amused by it rather than yeah. appalled yeah and i think that's how most people are
1: yeah i think most people are you know there's these, i kind of put up these in this article i put up these statistics on the kind of the level of our Addiction. Yes, it is what it is, an addiction to these phones. Okay. I think the demonstration of that addiction, that not a single person in the room or since has sort of said, yes, I'm going to get rid of my, my iPhone. I don't own one, but I must be one of the few people in London who doesn't. What do you do? Well, I use a, a you know, G3. I, I've got an old Nokia. Um, I spend enough time in front of this laptop to want to do it. So it's really simply because I spend so much of my life in front of a laptop. I don't want to take a computer out with me. But I'm very glad that I didn't go through that process of, um, of addiction formation, which I, is, is definitely what it was. You know, the other day I was, I was doing some new research and I was in the British Library. I was on the outside bit, you know, where everyone sort of has coffee and stuff. And I was joined at my table by sort of about six young girls who were, they were studying economics. They were sort of first year, second year students or something like that, so very bright people. The sort of people who could be running, you know, be CEOs and, and companies and so on and so forth in a few years. And it's a long time since I sort of, you know, I don't teach anymore. I've been around young students and they sat around me ostensibly studying economics. And literally, I don't think a half a minute passed, 30 seconds, when each one of them would sort of do something on their phone, touch it like that. And I thought, you know, these are people who are living in difficult circumstances. You know, people who haven't got much in their life to fill their, you know, you can understand that they're turning to various forms of addiction. These are the kind of the former leaders and they were utterly, bound to those phones um, so to go back to the kind of the point you began this with people you know we think we use these phones they don't they have programmed us to use them yes and that, that inversion of the idea that somehow capitalism is creating commodities which fulfill our needs and desires it's exactly the other way around they're creating subjects they're creating human beings which fit their needs the needs of the people making them and in a way that is what the fourth industrial revolution is about the kind of the ideologues of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, Harari has kind of sort of said the new product of the fourth industrial revolution isn't things like um, you know new clothes or cars or or you know mechanics or even computers. He says it's human beings. We are the things being produced, and I think that's kind of where we are at the moment.
0: By by what, just explain that a bit more. We are the things being produced.
1: Well, <clears throat> the mind exploited. Yeah, I, I I think it's, 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 we are being produced as new human beings. I think right. all totalitarian ideologies, whether it's Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia or, or, you know, or communist China or something, have this idea that there is a new man, there is a new figure who's going to become the, the dominant, um, the new model of how human beings relate with each other. I think the difference between those is, is that flawed as they were, the idea of the new man of those ideologies was something positive something which would be superior. I think the new man, the new human being, which is being fashioned at the moment, is being deliberately fashioned to compliance, to weakness, to an absence of community with our fellow human beings. You know, uh, the other day, I've I've been putting this off for a very long time, but I know that I have to write an article about trans ideology, um, which I don't see as being uh, coincidental. You know, it's enormous investment, um, financially, in, um, uh, you know, through, through company sponsorship through new legislation I don't see this as incidental to this great reset of western civilization I see it yes. really at the heart of the ideology and trans ideology is a transhumanism um, on, the, on this kind of spurious idea of trans rights young children are, are, you know, s- s- uh, given this choice that they can choose what sex they are what they're actually yes. given a choice is just to mutilate themselves but there's, there's two things going on one is the way that we think the way we behave our patterns of behavior, creating forms of addiction, which, are, which habituate us to ser- certain patterns of behavior and compliance. But I think there's also a big change going under in our biology as well. Um, I think the trans ideology is encouraging us to regard our bodies as a kind of a, communi- a consumer choice. that We can choose what we are. The whole idea of identity politics is you can search around for an identity and say, I am this, that and the other. Um, it's about focusing on who you are or what you are now. It's not really about who you are. You can choose what you are um, rather than your relationship to the world or to each other. So it's a very fragmenting form of ideology. But I think it's also I think it is becoming kind of a bit like, you know, Aldous is Huxley's Brave New World. It's not just about the ideology. They are trying, I think, fundamentally to change our biology. And they're very open about that. Harari says, you know, Yuval Harari, the, the kind of the advisor to, to Klaus Schwab, Says the product of the fourth industrial revolution is the minds and bodies of human beings, and I believe yes. it.
0: Yeah, yeah, And it's interesting, isn't it, that that his book has been on the bestseller list, very heavily promoted. I mean, when you once you understand just how all the different industries move in lockstep, that that it, it's my belief. I don't know whether you've 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 um, reached this conclusion as well that. No book that becomes a se- a bestseller does so without essentially the the design of the publishing industry. So it's I don't I, the, 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 there are very few kind of quality books that slip through the net and somehow by accident become popular. <laughs> that that Yuval Harari whatever, whatever uh, his his book was foisted on us, and we were told this is a really important book about about. Uh, human beings and 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 their in their transitional point in history and yeah. suddenly the chattering classes took it up you know the bbc would have promoted it or, or all the all the sort of write-on book clubs would have got on board with it and so on and so forth no one not a person would have bought that book um <laughs> willingly without that without the kind of the system pointing them in the right direction
1: yeah, I mean, he had he had everyone from Bill Gates and uh, Barack Obama and um, yeah, all, all the kind of the big oligarchs and so on, sort of saying this is the greatest thing I've ever read. Yes. I'm not sure why we should think that anything that Bill Gates <laughs> reads and approves of is is a kind of a recommendation. I mean, I, I've I've looked briefly at the book. It's one of those, it's one of those sort of popular philosophy books, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's it's the opinions of a very unpleasant no, no. person. Um, It's it's got absolutely no intellectual clout at all. Um, And yet he's probably the most fated public intellectual in the world at the moment, isn't he? In the West, anyway, at least. Every book he publishes is a bestseller. He's invited around to go and speak to very influential think tanks. Yes. And yet, if you listen to what he's saying, I mean, I described him in my book as a latter-day Joseph Joseph Goebbels, and he is. Yes. He's appalling. He uses, quite openly, I mean, he's an Israeli, and Israel is a, an apartheid state. Yeah. And I imagine growing up in that state as a, a kind of a, um, as an Israeli who, who looks on Palestinians as, the word he uses to describe us is useless mouths. He kind of talks about, he says, yeah. you know, all the people who used to do labor who are going to be replaced by not just the, um, the, uh, uh, the digitalization of labor, but he says, you know, these are useless people. We have to find something to do with them. Oh. I mean, he's not an idiot. He must know that that term—I can't remember what the German translation is here—useless um, mouths was used by the Nazis to describe anyone who was deemed either because they were not capable of, you know, engaging in manual labor or in any way serving the state as surplus to requirements. And they were the first people who were subjected to the involuntary euthanasia program. Um, yeah. And yet, yeah, this guy is quite openly talking in this way, and yet he is fated at the very, very highest levels, not only as a great intellectual, which he isn't, he's a populist mm. ideologue, but <laughs> someone we should be looking up to. I mean, what he says is absolutely appalling. So yeah, it's it's extraordinary. But
0: he's just essentially uh, a pawn who has been found and and promoted. He, he suits the agenda. They, they, they pick these figures mm. and they promote them because they're on message. So... He will have been, been chosen to deliver this particular phase of the messaging. But all this stuff that's happening now can be traced back decades. And, okay. you, and you see the gradualist approach. So you talk about identity politics. I mean, obviously, in the past, that it was all about, for example, race. And then it became, well, and I suppose you had the, the various waves of feminism. Again, you know, that it's all about we women are completely different from men, and, and and men just shaft us over, and you know they're the enemy, yeah. always. But always it's about it's about division and and confusion.
1: They yeah. want to turn yeah. us
0: against one another so that they can control us better.
1: It does go back a long way. I mean, I remember when I a long time ago now, but when I was doing my master's degree at UCL in London, um, and this new term came out. I um uh, was it political correctness? And I didn't really know about where it came from. It obviously came from the states. All bad ideas come from the United States. Um, and it was adopted very quickly. And like a lot of these ideas, they seem on the surface of it to be <clears throat> liberal, I guess. You know, the same thing about, mm. uh, you know, com- combating uh, you know discrimination and all this sort of stuff, not causing offense and so on and so forth. And, you know, identity or politics, which seemed to come shortly after that, um, critical race theory, and now, you know, woke and then trans, all these things are so successful and they've been adopted so uncritically by liberals, by university students, by the liberal middle classes um, and held up as kind of new, um, they've, they've become the new credo if like, if they, of, the, of this generation. Yeah. On the face of it, they seem to be good things, but they really, I think, you know, unveiled themselves now or been unveiled by people like us as being, incredibly insidious ideology. I mean, I think what we're talking about is, this is what I've been thinking about recently when I was thinking about what what we were going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. We mentioned this before. We're both a bit dispirited and sort of, you know, what exactly, where are we now and what are we trying to do? I think I'm trying to understand, this I think is something where history can help us a little (laughs) to try and understand this. How it has been, how has it been possible for what apparently seems that at every level of life from not just the top of the, the you know the CEOs of corporations or the top of government or the top of our kind of civic institutions but apparently all the way down through unions through Through the kind of civic bodies, the the kind of the balances and checks, you know, the checks and balances, this phrase we use, which is somehow something inherent, something which is woven into the warp and weft of democracy, that Mm. fascism or totalitarianism or authoritarianism can never come back because these But checks and balances are woven into our civic society. And yes, we might have a bad government, we might have a a corrupt corporation, we might have a bad police force, we might have all these sort of things. But these checks and balances will keep them in place, whether it's the media or whatever. You know, the media can be corrupted by, um, you know, by, by highly powerful oligarchs and so on. But there's always a checks and balances. And what's happened is those checks and balances have somehow been taken away, they've been undermined. And I think it's been done in two ways. I think on the one hand, 40 years, at least, of neoliberalism, which has done a number of things. But one of the things it does is it has disinvested from these civic institutions, not just the state, but civic institutions, from universities, from the media, from education, from parliament itself, if you like. They've all been disinvested. And into that vacuum of a lack of the NHS, another example, have come very, very, very powerful billionaires, -billionaires. multi-billionaires who have, as we know now, when we look at things like the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, how far it has penetrated into almost every aspect of our society, not just merely medical and health institutions, but our media, our our universities, everywhere. So on the one hand, they've they've now got a power where they can simply say to somewhere like University College London or Oxford University, um, these institutions which represent themselves as kind of Um, bastions of free thinking, maybe of not being free thinking, but of autonomous, being autonomous and somehow being a place from which one can critique and hold power to account, have been completely taken over by these oligarchs, let's call them what they are. Yeah. Um, So that's one of the ways it's been done and it's filtered down everywhere, it's filtered down to places I don't think we could have imagined. But the other thing that's happened is what we were just talking about, these ideologies, which on the surface of them do seem to be positive things, things against immigration, discrimination, Mm. things which are liberal in their intentions, have actually worked to erase any kind of criticality, not only towards themselves, but towards this far more material process, which has erased the checks and balances, the institutional or mechanics of checks and balances, which can hold Defended a democratic society against the kind of corporate takeover that we've seen at the moment. You know, at the moment, uh, someone like von der Leyen, the unelected president of the European Commission, I I kind of knew her before this, but she's swanning around now like like Adolf Hitler, frankly, declaring that we're going to do this in Ukraine and we're going to do that to digital ID and we're going to invest in this and we're going to do. And I look at him like, who the hell are you? I have no idea, you know, who are, who, who are you? And yeah. she's got no, she's got no, you know, she, she literally is swanning around like a Führer, like a European Führer, declaring what we're going to do, declaring that all the uh, G7 nations or the, all the European nations, the G20, are all united against, you, you know, uh, against Russia and the Ukraine. And I'm like, who is this person that's suddenly become the alleged spokesperson? She's a, she's a little bit like the president of the United States, but in Europe. But at least the president of the United States goes through some democratic process to get elected, Mm -hmm. flawed and corrupted as that is, as we've seen. But she's just this sort of she's just been kind of chosen by a secret society in a way.
0: Um, It makes me very much. It it makes me nostalgic for somebody (laughs) that during his lifetime, I rejected as a kind of insane leftist, dangerous lunatic.
1: Who's that? Tony Benn. Oh, no, not Tony Benn.
0: Sorry, I thought you said Blair there for a moment. No, Gosh, no, no, yes, no. no, no. I, I think Tony Blair really was a is, yes. a, is a dangerous lunatic. Um, yeah. uh, but but Tony 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 Benn, who I used to be infuriated by <laughs> when he was when he was a, a public figure, and I thought, you know, how can people be fooled by this? avuncular pipe-smoking demeanor with his <laughs> slight speech impediment. Didn't they realize that he was a self-hating <laughs> toff who'd renounced his title in uh, order yes. to, to uh, ferment dangerous leftist uh, ideas? That was, that, was me, that was me in my kind of conservative youth. Yeah. And I now look back and, and his off quoted statements about, so, um, I can't remember exactly about. If you, can't, if get, you
1: can't vote, vote them out.
0: You yes, know, yes. That, the, that's something I comes like that, down to. Yeah. And you look at you look at Ursula von der Leyen, and you think, yeah. well, we have no. She seems to be setting the setting the agenda and the policy. Yeah. We have no control. We can't. We can't get yeah. rid of her. Yeah.
1: And when you see her in these appalling meetings with our, on unele- another unelected figure, our unelected uh, prime minister, um, you don't have to be a student of body language to understand where the power lays there, and yet. Normally, um, Rishi Sunak is the prime minister of the sixth largest economy in the world, um, yes. one of the major kind of powers in Europe, the great link between Europe and the USA. Yeah. And yet when he's around her, he, he's like a lapdog and it's quite clear where the power lies. And she seems to be fairly similar, perhaps not with um, the Italian, the new Italian prime minister, but... Um, yeah she she you know she, she who is this woman um we've moved you know i've been warning about this i did it through all my books about this move from the nation state as the um, as the as the model of democratic governance since at least the yeah. French Revolution if you like um and how we've moved into a global form of government we we're now quite openly calling it we're not was People who, who are forming it, and quite openly calling it a world government or yes. a, a single world order, um, who we have, they haven't, they're not even trying to set up a kind of a UN sort of model of uh, accountability that somehow we, re- we vote for people who then vote for people who then go on to the council or this. They've simply set themselves up as a top down kind of dictatorship, really. And yeah. they're very open about it. And that's happened in front of our faces over the last three years, but actually even closer than that. It's actually happened, I think it's actually happened since the, this proxy war with Ukraine. Um, yes. It's become, it, that's become the sort of the front, the new front for this utterly autocratic model of governance. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. And she we somehow has emerged like, as, the, as, the, as this new Fuhrer figure. It's quite amazing.
0: I want to talk to you about Ukraine in a moment, but I was yes. just wanted to pick up on one point you made, which is about national sovereignty. Um, did you see, there was a conference recently in London, um, National conservative something like National Conservatism, yeah, Yes. Yeah. and uh, I noticed that, that some of the participants in this National Conservatism conference were picking themselves up by saying, yeah, and you can tell we matter because the left has really been getting up in arms about us and you, you go on Twitter and they've been saying terrible things about us. And I was looking at these people, and I was thinking, actually, you know what? Nobody gives a toss nobody who who wasn 't at your at your silly conference gives yeah. a toss, and okay, the people who you claim are opposing you are themselves part of this this illusion yeah. uh, this this punch and Judy show, which is put on uh, yeah. for our benefit you don 't count for anything because I was looking at the figures, looking at these sort of conservative voices i 'm not going to name any names, but the, 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 the kind of Supposed conservative voices speaking out for national sovereignty who were speaking at this conference, none of them spoke out against against the uh, the, the, the vaccine rollout pro- yeah, program. Yeah, none of them spoke at the time, or, or but barely about the, about the lockdown. Yeah. None of them spoke out, for example, when Australia was was essentially turned once more into a prison colony yeah. with concentration camps yeah. being being erected Mm. in in plain view for dissenters for people who quarantine camps and things and I remember at the time waiting to read the robust op-ed in the (laughs) the telegraph or whatever by one of these (laughs) conservative voices you know where was where, where was the robust piece by one of those empire lovers like Dan Hannan, or 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 celebrators of the power of the Anglo sphere. You know, where was the Douglas Murray piece on how appalling this was that this should happen in our lifetime? Yeah. And there was nothing. You know, yeah. where was Charles Moore? Yeah. Nowhere to be seen. Yeah. And yet, these are the people who are now saying, yes, but we think we think um, <laughs> national sovereignty is really important. We need a new way that uh, we need an, an, an alternative. Uh, system uh, to counter this one world government thing, well, hang on a second, guys, where were you when the fight in the fight when it mattered? you were nowhere, and now you 're having this I hate to use the word echo chamber, but there you are sitting in your echo chamber, making your speeches, and you 're not going to make a difference because you 're part of the problem
1: yeah it's if we if we and we have if we 've moved the ultimate source of Of power upper level to this kind of global block which is being formed it's not quite global because obviously you know there's what's very interesting at the moment is there's this alternative block forming around this alliance between China and Russia yes the BRICS nations coming in as well which has really given the USA and Europe pause particularly over you know what's going on in the Ukraine I was kind of hoping it would lead to them standing down but there's definitely a Western, a new Western bloc being formed. It's been there for a long time. And it's very much now around not the USA and the UK with us playing our typical role of the sort of the lap dog on uh, Blo- Blofeld's kind of, you know, stroking a uh, stroking cat. It's now very much about Europe and the USA becoming these two kind of superpowers. Um, since power has moved up there, you've then got to think, well, what is the role of national governments now? I remember very, very early on, um, actually it was before all this, it was in his book, uh, what was it called, by Lord Sumption, uh, Jonathan Sumption, the, the former um, Justice of the Supreme Court, um, in his book, what was it called, Trials of the State, he gave those wreath lectures, which gave, I think they published it in 2019, just before this, and at the end, he ends with a kind of a, a prediction about what's happening to our democracy, and I think he was reflecting on the whole sort of the, you know, the, the Brexit process, but he said, he said, this is how democracy dies. And it doesn't happen with, in, in mature democracies, you don't have uh, people coming out onto the streets. You don't have people taking over. It's not a coup. It's not like somewhere in Chile or something like that. He says, the facade of democracy remains, but the actual mechanics of it have simply been you know, erased, if you like. And he says, if this happens, it will be our fault because it can only happen in a democracy when the people who constitute that democracy, because it's not just the institutions, it is the public, it is the population as well, um, don't defend it strongly enough. They don't stand up for free speech, they don't stand up for the, the fundamental principles of this. And I agree with you absolutely that these, what Parliament now, <clears throat> perhaps it has been for a while, but it now it is absolutely, is a spectacle of democracy um, it's almost like a game show, it is a game show, you know, everyone watches um, uh, Prime Minister's Question Times every, every week and they actually think this matters, they think this is actually something which is having any kind of effect whatsoever and people sit there and they fight with each other and they call each other's names and they denounce each other and they say, you know, Tory, what's the, you know, so they, they use the Tory, Tory scum or something like that and then Labourer kind of loony left and all this stuff and it is a Punch and Judy show and it's amazing they can keep it up but I guess that's their job, they are actors in a, in a theatre. Um, yeah. And it creates, you know, sometimes I I go on, I go on to Twitter, I go on to Twitter a lot and I see these kind of old school leftists, the kind of the Corbynite lot, who still think there's something at stake in Parliament. They still think there's a chance. That if only Corbyn had taken over Parliament, if only he formed a government, that somehow, you know, we could all go into this lovely, you know, people like, um, uh, what's his name? Owen and, uh, you know, the whole kind of Corbyn artist sort of stuff. They deal, do to think that this is a source of, you know, kind of power and stuff. And you, I agree with you. You kind of want to say to them, when do you think this all happened? You know, when, when when you think this this threat of a new world government happened? You know, you really think some sort of national conservatism is going to take back power. It's just another Punch and Judy show. Um, It is. You see, you know, we say with um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Matt Hancock now being interrogated about his his affairs under lockdown and things like that. Nobody actually asks what on earth he actually did during that time. You know, the appalling kind of crimes against humanity he was responsible for. And nobody actually asks him about, you know, what is actually going on with the World Health Organization here. These are all distractions to stop us looking at the real threats which are coming Which are being implemented right now, and which the press is completely and utterly failing to cover at all. Although I I I I totally agree
0: with your view, except the sort of the the cynical and maybe wiser actually part of my brain reminds me that the corruption um has been embedded in the system far longer than we understood at the time mm. for example you and i may be just old enough to remember, i remember when ted heath was prime minister do you remember ted heath <laughs> yes i do <laughs> uh, i mean here you've got a guy who in all likelihood was a a murderous paedophile <laughs> who was in 10 downing street and Bumping off rent boys mm. on his yacht mm. on his yacht Morning Cloud. You know, we we were always encouraged to say to, like what what do we know about Ted Heath? What 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 did we did we know about at the time about Ted Heath? We knew that <laughs> there was there was the um, Mike Yarwood impersonation of him. There was <laughs> the fact that he he loved sailing on his yacht. We knew the name of the yacht Morning Cloud, and we knew that he had classical music aspirations because he conducted some symph- symphony orchestra or other. And you think about it, it's a bit like Matt, the, the things we know about Man- Matt Hancock that he, he goes on, I'm a celebrity and he had an affair yeah, yeah. with this woman who obviously wasn't his wife. And all these, I, 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 I noticed the same thing going on with, with, with labor MPs. They often, they'll often pick issues sort of, they troll. They troll the right, and they sort of they sort of appeal to their kind of rabid fan base by picking on silly racial issues or whatever, yeah. you know, making a fuss about this. Like Diane, Diane Abbott is the is the mistress of this, right. talking about yeah. slavery and, and 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 so on. None of this is really relevant to the lives of of the people that. Their, their job supposedly is to serve the, 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 people people care about things like the fact that that they can't afford to heat their homes because yeah. of because of net zero they care about the fact that they can't get jobs anymore because so many jobs have been destroyed yeah. in that in, in the during the fake pandemic and so on so y- yes you're right we've got these pantomime figures in parliament who don't do anything that that uh, is any use to us but i would suggest to you that they've been bad actors for, for much longer than we realized.
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I almost pine for the days of Thatcher's governments and that, that kind of that wonderful group of weirdos that she had in her cabinet. You know, they, they, were, they were kind of extraordinary. The people we have in, you know, I've said many, many times, and I'll repeat it all the time, the parliament we've got now is the worst parliament we've had in my lifetime, probably in living memory, probably beyond that, probably in modern times at all. Um, yeah they're mediocre people. I got the feeling that the kind of the people around in Thatcher's government, they were corrupt and awful people, but they weren't mediocre. They kind of knew their stuff anyway. Um, you might yes. not agree with what they were doing, but they weren't mediocre people. I think Parliament now is simply not up to the job of governing, governing or holding the government to account at all. Yes, um, they, were,
0: they, they were kind of crooks with hinterland. <laughs> they, they, they might be might be terrible people, but at least yeah. so Lord Carrington had had been in the Guards Armoured Division and and had been on the sort of the, the, the doomed attempt to rescue yeah. um, the paratroopers at, at Arnhem, and and Whitelaw uh, <laughs> uh, Whitelaw had had got an MC in in yeah. in the, in the yeah. Second World War, I, I suppose. Yeah, so they had had a past, but
1: I mean, still. When, when, you know, every now and then I, I, I kind of go into who actually makes up our Parliament. Usually, when there's been a vote. And I'd like to see who voted which way and stuff. And Labour, I mean, this is the way these these ideologies now are having really, you know, these kind of marginal ideologies have completely infiltrated into our politics. Um, Identity politics means that most of Labour, and particularly in its London constituencies, are chosen because of their identity. That is what their religion is, what their race is, what their sex is. Um, maybe what their sexuality is, whatever. Um, they're chosen because people will go out and vote for them because they'll go, well, okay, here is a black or Asian or Muslim or gay or female or whatever. And if you look at the constituent, you know, the people who make up the Labour Party, it seems to me, and this is my knowledge of kind of fighting with Labour for a long time in kind of housing policy, that they've been chosen not on any kind of qualifications they've got as, you know, someone who <laughs> you might go to for advice, someone who might know how to re- read a legal document somebody who understands anything about the economy. They're chosen as kind of cheerleaders to go around and rustle up votes to get that constituency to vote Labour. Um, unfortunately, when they're then asked as MPs, as sitting members of parliament, to scrutinize a document, which is, you know, like the documents that were just taken away so many of our liberties, or to engage with something like the repercussions of digital ID. They simply don't have the chops to do it. They simply can't do it at all. Whereas the makeup of the Conservative Party seems to be very different. They're people who seem to be entrepreneurs, basically. They got there because the Labour Labour Party and the Conservative Party are such different animals. Labour Party is this sort of vast organization. The Conservative Party is, is a very tight, small organization. And they don't get people in to rustle up votes. I think England, certainly England, but Britain generally, Defaults to voting conservative, you know, has historically and it does all the time. They're not worried about, I think, so much getting votes. They have a crack team which they call the cabinet who are there to disparage the opposition. Um, But the rest of them are there because they're good at what MPs are primarily there for, which is to lobby for corporations who will then receive preferential treatment and return will spend a huge amount of money um, supporting the um the Conservative Party. So they're they both operating on very different mechanisms, I think, of of of, of parliamentary engagements. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think any of them, certainly on the labor the Labour side, have any they literally don't have the intellectual capacity or the education or the life experience or the um what they've learned from running a company or something like that or anything at all to read a document uh, to read a bit of legislation and that is primarily what the legislature is there for. Parliament is a legislature there that just scrutinize documents and hold governments to account. They can't do that. They literally can't do that and I think that's why the appalling dis- the dismantling of our democratic institutions and the checks and balances that we were talking about before has been done so rapidly and with such ease over the last three years.
0: I, I think there's no doubt that things have got dramatically worse in the last few, or, right no, let me put it another way. I think they have become more shameless and overt in displaying their utter contempt for what we imagine what we 've deluded ourselves is, is is this thing called democracy. Yeah. I think that actually elections have have long been rigged uh, I, I I think that Whenever they have a debate about something, the issue has been actually decided long ago, and that the, the 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 discussion, the back and forth, is just a, a, a fig leaf to 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 give us the false notion that 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 we that, that an element of kind of cost benefit analysis has has gone into this this stuff. I, I, I I'm, I'm I'm more cynical than you that I think that this this rot goes back a very long way. Just picking up on on one point, oh. um, on, on, on which I agree with you, by the way, about about the the way that all the institutions have been captured, mm. um, that the the universities, um, for example, that they've you know, you've you've got how e- how easy it is to capture institutions yeah. and yeah. and subvert them, and I was thinking. The playbook for this goes at least back to was it 1911 uh, with the the do you know about the is it the Flexner report no,
1: yeah. in
0: the US. Wow. OK, so um, Carnegie and Rockefeller, mm. two of the robber, robber barons um, who were just raping, raping America, raping the economy, raping, mm. just just grabbing what they could. I think after, I, I think I'm right in saying that this, this was partly a response to the breakup of Standard Oil, oh, which meant yeah. that their monopolistic business model was no longer going to make, going to make them as disgustingly rich as hitherto. <laughs> so they needed a new way of, of just, just leeching off the system. And they decided that they would transform medicine into the, into the behemoth that it's become today. Yes. So, they decided to uh how do you do that how do you create this new model whereby you foist on the consumer on the public these alleged medical treatments which actually probably make them sick rather than healthy but keep them on in a kind of in a state where they require more and more of these of these these medicines Mm -hmm. what they did was that they they said to all the different medical colleges across America, we will, um, we, will pu- we will give you loads and loads of money. I mean, a bit like Carnegie did with the libraries. Yeah, the, the, yeah. He, he put these libraries all over the, all over the, the world you know, so, so that they could, they could, they could propagandize the, uh, in the guise of, of education. Um, we will fund your medical college, but here's the deal you've got to accept our man. Our great new guy is going to come and run this college for you, mm. and and of course they would they would parachute into these roles people who were on board with this new mm. Rockefeller Carnegie medicine. I may have got the details slightly wrong, but this is the essence of it: that that money talks, money, and these people have unimaginable amounts of money. Mm. They can buy <coughs> up every institution. And you're right. Back in the day, it may have been possible that, that there would still have been these crusty old dons and professors <laughs> at universities who would have held out against this stuff mm. but they don't exist anymore i don't think yeah. I, I even I, when i was at university it was very very rare to have have professors who who were like that who 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 are stood up for for values regardless of politics mm. now i think they don't exist at all everyone's just a creature of the beast system
1: yeah i mean one of the things that Neoliberal, well, under, in this country under Thatcher did it explicitly, but it was, a, it was part of the kind of the neoliberal drive, although the, she favoured this greatly, was this idea of a new managerial class. You know, the, the old yeah. model of a, of a university or of a factory, any kind of industry is that the person who was not the person who owned it, of course, that would be the capitalist, don't you like the person. Who's, but this, the person who was kind of running the shop had come up from below a university professor who was head of department had been an undergraduate and then had been a junior lecturer Mm -hmm. and then had been a senior lecturer, then a professor and so on. And they kind of knew something about how a department is run. And a university department is not the same as a telephone company. It's not the same as a factory floor for a, you know, someone who's building cars. It's not the the same thing as a a doctor's surgery. These all have particular cultures. They have uh, particular uh, mechanics of how they function best. And neoliberalism came in and said, they're all businesses. Everything was reduced to a business, and therefore they installed at the top a managerial class who had absolutely no experience whatsoever about the culture of that particular industry, whether it was education or mechanics or whatever at all, whether it was running an airline, they simply kind of parachuted people in. And certainly in things like education, which I've got experience of being a you know, from that industry myself, but I mentioned it's the same in the media and everything um it's created enormous problems as well you know i my partner my girlfriend is still in for her sins still part-time in education and you don't have heads of department now you have a line manager um, and you know they've got absolutely no idea about what it is to what what are the student experiences in that particular field you know you, um so yeah i think that's that's one of the consequences i think of neoliberalism where everything is seen as a business everything's a business. But it's, it's, I mean, all these things are gradual and they're incremental, but there has been some very fundamental shifts recently. I think the way that, I mean, to identify Oxford University, our greatest university, if you like, it's collusion in the AstraZeneca, um, you know, gene therapy. Um, and yes. it's, it's complete lack of apology for the, the thousands of people that that poison killed and it's, you know, then it's, it's, you know, the knighting of, uh, what's his name, Andrew, I can't remember his name now, the people involved in it. It's just disgraceful. And, you know, one of the things I did in my books, I'll get around to talking to in a minute, um, is, yes. is, is, is to look at the. Show us your book. Okay. Well, this is books. So the, these, these are the two new books. One is the first volume, the collections of essays. One is uh, Virtue and Terror, Selected Articles on the UK Biosecurity State. That's volume one. And the second one is The New Normal, which is volume two. I'll probably have a third one coming out the way things are going at the end of the year. Um,
0: can, I, can I just give a, a, a quick plug yeah, so on, on. On, on your behalf? Um, they are really, really good scholarly books of essays um, on, on the emergent biosecurity state, on, on the corruption, malfeasance, and so on that happened during the so called. Pandemic, and one of the problems I had before we started this conversation was knowing which of the many threads in your book to pick up. Because I, I, I would certainly, write, it's a different book. I, I think it's actually probably more readable, but I would, in its significance, I would say it's it's up there with the Robert Kennedy book, which 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 I think blows the the R F K book on on the the history of 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 um, Anthony, Fa- the real Anthony yeah, Fauci yeah. and all all the all the monstrosity that went into that. You know that it's not a it's it it's not a bedtime read, <laughs> but it but it is full of, of really interesting information. And, I, I, and I, okay, so you've you've picked one of the many excellent examples from the book about the the, the AstraZeneca thing yeah. and this. The, the, and I think I'm sure you mentioned in the book the way that the woman who was made a dame. Who was given a standing ovation yeah. at, at Wimbledon yeah. for having invented this or been involved in the development of this jab, yeah. which we now know caused people to have fatal blood clots yeah. and
1: things? It's, what it's, and yet it's probably the most. De- it is definitely the most deadly of the various experimental forms of gene therapy. It's different to the mRNA uh, um, vehicle, but it's still a form of gene therapy, and it's. It is an absolute bloody disgrace what it did and is continuing to do. I mean, the whole the whole history of the development and uh, rollout of that vaccine, in, in inverted commas, um, has been just completely buried by the press. You know, now they're kind of selling it to African countries and things like that because they don't really care about what the kind of the damages it does to it. And everyone associated with it um, is, I mean, what's his name, Pascal, Pascal, I've forgotten his name now, uh, the Australian guy who's the head of the, the CEO of it, you know, is best friends with uh, Prince, oh, sorry, King Charles now. Um, everyone in it has been either made into a dame or a knight, which kind of immunizes them. It's one of the things that is associated with that fake vaccine, which actually does confer immunity. That is, the people who developed it are now apparently immune from prosecution, it will be very very hard because they have been effectively, you know, welcomed into the uh, into the aristocracy, if, if you like. Um, one of the things I did in my, one yeah. in my book, going back to kind of uh, Oxford University, the levels of funding it has accepted, not just from, um, but primarily from the Billing Melinda Gates Foundation, are absolutely astronomical. Um, and the individual funding of people involved in the development of the AstraZeneca gene therapy are also kind of, you know, their own practices, their own uh, studios, their own, what do I call it, workshops, are all privately funded by, basically, you know, the corporate, the corporate world has taken over in this vacuum, which is created by defunding from government. They've taken over these institutions, and it is an absolute bloody disgrace. You know, I come out about academia, and I think the way that, the way that these so-called intellectuals, who are meant to be one Only one, but one of the checks and balances which holds on and defends democracy has been completely and utterly bought and co-opted by it. Um, Yeah. And that's something I try to, I try to document and to uh, record in these books, because one of the reasons these, these, the articles in these books were written, as you know, over the first two years of the, uh, the the pandemic, the the, the lockdown, if you like. And I published them after I published my book, The Road to Fascism, which did very well. And I suddenly thought, okay, maybe there is a kind of a readership for this. There had been a readership online. I think about the last time I looked, I had about 300,000 people who have read these articles online. Um, But then I thought, I'm actually going to put them into a book. Um, And I did that for a number of reasons. One of them is a few months ago, everyone started saying, oh, we were wrong about lockdown, maybe. Maybe we were a little bit too harsh. It was definitely the right thing to do, but we were a little bit too harsh about it. Oh, maybe the vaccines, not the vaccines, but you have people like Chris Whitty, who is one of the leading figures in justifying lockdown and um, the kind of the declarations of SAGE of, this, of the scientific and, uh, advisory group for emergencies, and ultimately for the, the, the kind of the, the gene therapy rollout. And he started saying in the face of this huge increase in excess deaths that we've had over the last year, um, he said, "Well, maybe lockdown and the withdrawal of medical diagnosis um, or um, and, and of treatment for 68 million people for two years, maybe that was going to have a kind of a knock-on effect." And then the the you know you had the journalists coming in and saying, "Well, we should call an amnesty now because." Okay, maybe we were a little bit overzealous, but but, you know, we didn't really know what was going on because this was unprecedented and stuff like this. And this really got me annoyed and a lot of other people got annoyed. I'm very happy to say that people sort of said, you can, you know, you can take a flying jump. Um, It was a lot of us in different degrees and different ways. We knew almost from the start or very shortly after the start or within six months or whatever the time was that. Locking down a country for two years would have incredibly and appalling effects on the economy, we knew that the kind of um, financial measures used to address that, specifically quantitative easing, uh, in this country nearly 10 billion was um, sorry not 10 billion, 1 billion, um would cause uh, you know rising inflation. We knew that um, putting um, businesses on furlough would lead to a huge rise in bankruptcies and loss of jobs and so on. Um, we knew that rolling out a experimental gene therapy program would have would kill thousands, injure millions, and have still unknown consequences. We knew all this from the very beginning. And yeah. the fact that now a lot of journalists, doctors, and politicians are now saying, oh, well, we didn't know that. We did the best we could. That is a fundamental line. One of the things I wanted to do was to republish these articles. I, I fiddled with them a little bit, but I wanted to keep them as they were to show that in March, was it March? in May 2020, I wrote a very substantial article about the costs, I called it the collateral damage of lockdown, and I looked all around the world and I compared it to England, it was absolutely without shadow of a doubt that lockdown was going to kill thousands of people, millions of people worldwide, and destroy the economy. So anyone saying that they didn't know that is a liar. If I can work it out, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an economist, and I'm not an actuary, but I was able to work that out. And I wanted to publish, publish these in a way as a historical document, one amongst many, which will show, no, these people who are lying about what they did and didn't know at the time, they are lying about it. We can show why they were lying about it. There's, a, there's yes. another reason as well. There's another reason, if you let me just get this in. Yeah. I'm, we've got a whole lot of new legislation coming in a moment, like the online safety bill and so on. When the online safety bill goes through, I think social media is kind of over in a way. Um, you know, Twitter's censorship has kind of changed now We can't. you know, I don't see your, I don't see you online at all on Twitter anymore, James, and I don't see not any really. of the other thousand people or so I follow. I never see anything. All I see is um, <clears throat> Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, or I see stuff about the monarchy, or I see stuff about Ukraine. That's all I get on. So it's not censorship anymore. It's not so much censorship. It's just that we don't see what we want to see. It's all a one-way speech now. Twitter is now telling us what we want to see. But when the online safety bill comes on and these online platforms are given the authority and the duty, it's not only authority, they're told they have to do this, um, I think my stuff and a lot of other stuff written similarly like this, your stuff, will simply no longer be accessible. It won't simply have a warning saying, Twitter says this could cause actual world harm. If you read it, it simply won't be accessible as well. I can see that various environmental fundamentalist groups, like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, will very soon, or soon, come out and say, since books use trees, and we need trees to save the planet, books are killing the planet. And I can see books, which are a very strange form of information. When they, you know, the printing began, when was it, sort of 17th century or something, 18th century, when it came out, the church was very worried about printing, because people could start communicating with each other, outside of the control of the church, they've always been a sort of subversive form of uh, a subversive medium. And I like books. I grew up with books and I remember my father who was in computers said when I was very young, one day books won't exist because everything will be online, not online, but in digital form. And he was right and I think that's where we're going. And when they do that, they'll have complete control over education. They'll have complete control over the media. They'll have complete control over all forms of propaganda that we live by. So I've been encouraging people to buy my books not just because I want to you know, get my sales up and stuff and I'd like them to read this information, but I do believe genuinely that in a few years, I don't know how long, books will not be accessible. They will simply be seen as a form of killing the planet. And that means they've got complete control, particularly over our education system. Yes. The, well,
0: this, everything is coordinated and, and, and pre-planned, which is Google um, and an Amazon, I suppose it was more of an Amazon project. We, we, we imagine that there are these people, these entrepreneurs who think up these brilliant ideas. You know, I'm, I'm Jeff Bezos and I'm just a, a, a far a sighted guy and I'm gonna set up Amazon. No, these people are, are selected in the same way that Bill Gates was selected, that um, Mark Zuckerberg was selected. And of course, the func- one of the functions of Amazon was this thing to promote the Kindle in order to get people out of the habit of of, of, of reading books yeah. um, and put everything, make everything digital, precisely with the long term view that that we should no longer have this repository of of knowledge and diverse yeah. thinking. That that is and always was was the plan, and luckily for us, I all, just as quite a, a significant portion of us. Would would not get. We're not going to take the de- the death jab for whatever reason. And in the same way, I think a lot of us resisted the. I I I I had a go at Kindles for a while, and then I just thought, I don't like it. I don't get the tactile pleasure yeah, yeah. Of, of 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 reading a book and the smell of 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 that you get from touching touching paper. So our our human needs. Um, will always frustrate these, these, these. well not will always, but they do help frustrate the technocrats, because we are humans and we are the things they don't want us to be, because we
1: have these emotions and these senses that they can't quite deal with. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I come from a generation and a kind of a um, an education background, which was very critical of humanism. Um, it's kind of a claims to universality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the theories that I grew up being educated in at undergraduate and postgraduate level, like discourse theory and post-structuralism and all these kind of terrible words and stuff, postmodernism and so on, were about attacks on humanism, which was seen to be at the heart of kind of ills like racism and all that sort of stuff. And I used to teach this sort of stuff. I understand it. Um, but I understand what it originally was as a critique. And unfortunately, a lot of clever people have taken a lot of those critiques of power, which emerged out of the 60s, like feminism, like black consciousness, like colonial studies, like critiques of language, of discourse theory and stuff, all things which are about trying to understand the nature of power, and perhaps to combat it and to Uh, to educate people and to enable them to have a more critical relationship to this wave of propaganda that we're getting from the media and the parliament and all this stuff. Basic kind of stuff. But a lot of very clever people have got together and found how to turn socialism into identity politics, how to turn black consciousness into screaming racism at everyone, you know, who you disagree with, turning feminism into God knows what, I know woke or something like that. They've been very clever at about inverting all these critiques of power into means by which power can be defended, um, and I think that's that's kind of where we got now. Um, sorry, how was that? I was going to get around to what you were saying about what you were you saying in your comment about
0: about books ah, about, yes, about books.
1: And... My point about humanism is, I become a new humanist. <laughs> I really want to defend the human being now, um, and I yeah. think. I think one in a a kind of a theoretical framework. It's a funny one. If humanism was right, and there is something called the human being, that we're not merely or exclusively a construct of ideology, power uh, structures of society, that there is something peculiar and particular to us, which you can call the human being, and that this goes through throughout time and across the world. Of course, we're all gonna have different cultural habits and so on and so forth, but there is something called the human being and that something is worth defending. Um, If that's the case, we will win this battle. Maybe not now, but in generations to come, but we will win this battle because the human being will reassert itself. If we're wrong and we are simply constructs of power, we'll lose it. Like you, I'm with sort of similar generation and I, I'm a lover of books and I've always I've got way too many books up in my. It's very difficult when you live in London, kind of carting these books around. Um, I love the smell and the touch of them. But what I like most of all is the independence they give me. I've got that book. And when I want to think about something, my mind will go somewhere in that book There's a quote which think is about that. If I'm writing something, and I can find that book. I don't have to go online. I don't even have to go to the British Library and dig it out. It's there. It's accessible to me. And I've developed, mm-hmm. like you were saying, I've developed a relationship to books as objects. They're extraordinary objects in which you get a lot invested. But going back to that picture I kind of painted of me sitting down in the British Library with that group of, you know, very intelligent girls studying economics. Are they, have they got that relationship to books? You know, I said my partner, she, she teaches um, architecture at De Montfort University. And I remember under lockdown, she asked her class, um, when's the last, what, how many books have you read this year? What books? no, she said, what books have you read this year? What books about architecture? And they said, none. And she said, okay, what other books have you read? And they said, none. And she said, has anyone read a book? This is a group of students, first, second, third years. Has anyone read a book this year? And the whole class said no. They just don't read books anymore. So um, this thing that you talked about, is there a human relationship to books? which of course have only been around for I don't know, 500 years, something like that. less than that actually, 300, 400 years, accessible to the, the population with, you know, uh, with, the, with people being able to read them widely. That's only maybe 200 years or so, maybe less. Is that gonna survive this? Because going back to what I was saying before, the product of the fourth industrial revolution is the human being, our bodies and minds. We're being taught not to read books. So pick up a book like this, which is 200 pages long, and read it from cover to cover. We've got different patterns of reading now. Students or anyone reads as you know. We read online, we read on phones, and we only read little bits. We get sound bites. So it's not simply the text or the words. It's how these patterns of behavior, ways of finding knowledge, ways of thinking through the world. Because A book, finally, the most important thing about the book is it's a space in which you think for hours on end. Just you in that book, and that is being deliberately and very, very aggressively undermined.
0: Yes, yes, you're you're absolutely right. There was somebody, or, somebody on my um, my Telegram channel was. We were talking, I was talking about this new Netflix series I'd been quite enjoying called Silo, set in a dystopian future where they all live in a silo. <laughs> and I'd been saying this is this is actually pretty pretty good. I'm I'm, I'm enjoying it. And somebody said. I've re- it's nothing like the book. I've read the book, and oh. and 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 that the episode three where they spend the whole episode trying to stop the turbine breaking down—you know, it's ridiculous. It wasn't given that prominence in the oh. book. And I was thinking, duh, when was when was the the adaptation ever better than the book? The book is because you've got that special relationship. It's 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 you and the author. And in between is your imagination, and it's a relationship yeah. with the words, and 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 it takes you to a realm that you're never going to going to experience, or very rarely in the cinema or or or, or with the television screen. And I and I remember moments of my well getting lost in a book. That that, that the whole idea of, of being lost in a book. It's something you could, you, whatever your troubles, you can you can yeah. get involved with the emotional problems of. You know, Anna Karenina has got it much much worse than you. I mean, she really has. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to be in her shoes. Um, or identifying as I am at the moment with Levin. I think Levin's Levin's my man. I, I, I'm, I'm totally with his relationship with the land and, and, and scything and stuff. Um, this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I I dread to watch a TV adaptation of Anna, Anna Karenina. Um, you, you, you you could be right that this that we could be the last. I mean, actually, having said that, my one of my sons reads books, mm. and only books, okay. and reads them then all the time, and, and reads lots of yeah. them, and, and, and voraciously, so it's, but but, I, but he may be the exception.
1: Mm. I mean, when's the last time you saw, you've just answered that, but I, if I think about the last time I saw someone reading a book, like on the tube, or in a park, on a bench, you know, even in the British library there's I've not many, played that game. even in the British Library there are not that many people reading books you know they're sitting there with their, their laptops. There's not actually that many people reading books now it's, it's kind of I, I haven't been to the British Library for a while and I went back recently to do some research and uh, I was amazed at how, how much it had changed in a way. you know it used to be a sort of a place of higher learning you had to be postgraduate to get in there. Now it kind of there's a big sign outside saying we're open to everyone <laughs> which That's was great. when I was you know when I was I as an undergraduate we couldn't get anywhere near the place. Um, and yeah. it's now full of people working on their, their laptops. They're not really reading books. So I think books are a threat. And that's one of the reasons, not the only one, that I encourage people to not just buy my books, to buy books as well and hold on to them.
0: Do you know what, Simon, you're you actually going back to the beginning of this, of this podcast. You have actually helped my wife in her campaign to get me off my bloody <laughs> um, iPhone. And you're right. Uh-huh i i I really must get in the thing is you 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 sort of persuade yourself you need the phone because you need for for directions or you need to book a restaurant or you need to find out random bits of information but really it's a sort of a series of dopamine hits isn't it that that you're you're looking for people reacting adverse adversely or positively to your latest post on Twitter or whatever that's what you're really after and you make these excuses for yourself about yeah. I, I just need it just to communicate. I think one should really get in the habit of, well, I, I was going to give you an example. When you're, when you're traveling on, on, on the tube or in a train carriage, and sometimes if you look up from your, your, your phone and you look at this, this dystopian vision of all these people, just, just they're all. They're they're playing fruit games and oh, things oh, or they're they're just allude to this. Oh, oh. They're killing time. And it's not
1: good. They're not it's time is life, isn't it? I, I mean, when people when people defend the smartphone, they talk about its convenience. And it does, you know, I made a great big long list of all the things it combines. It's an A to Z, it's a map of the world. It's a phone, it's a camera, it's a music console. It's, it's loads of things, isn't it? It's 20 things, which... It's a prison, <laughs> And you could... But, and I kind of say, well, you could put all those things in your bag. You could carry a novel to read on the tube. You could buy a newspaper. You could have an A to Z. You could uh, have a, a sound system if you, if you want to have that in your ears. You could replace all that stuff. But that's actually not what it's about. Smartphones are convenient, but that's not how people use them. I was looking up the figures. Um, these were based in the U.S., but it's not so different from us, I think. Um, the, guess how many times the average person, whatever that is, uses their, consults their, 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 their smartphone per day. Do you think it is?
0: I, I'm guessing quite a lot. It's
1: 2,600. I was going to guess 300 and I thought I was being generous. 2,600. Now, you're not going to your phone 2600 to find, to look at the map, to find the pub so you can meet your friend for a, a date. Yeah, yeah. You're not using it to look up, oh, what's that word mean and make sure I'm spelling it right. You're not using it for all these things that you say, What well, I'm not using you personally, but one says that, that I use it for convenience. You're not consulting it. We're not consulting them 2600 times a day for convenience. We're consulting it out of addiction and habit. And it's changing the way our consciousness works. It's keeping us, as I said with this example, which I keep on going back to, of these highly intelligent girls studying ec- economics, they were not able to enter into a conscious step space of attention, of concentration. And a infinitely distracted populace is one which is open to, maybe we can get onto this now actually, but, uh, but onto just having their minds completely controlled. You know, the other day, <sighs> Like all of us, I've been horrified and fascinated at how COVID compliance has now gone into Ukraine compliance, if we can call it that. The seamless transition from anyone not complying with COVID measures being a murderer to anyone who is not um, in favor of environmental fundamentalism is, is killing the planet to anyone who is not completely on the side of handing over every last penny we ever have. To Vladimir Zelensky is somehow you know whatever, and I was yeah. let me give you a little example. I was on, I was looking at um what's his name is it Chris Chris Williamson the the former Labour MP who's not someone I've got any kind of you know particular opinion about or something. I do know that he was I think he was expelled from the Labour Party for his his criticisms of of um of of the of the Israel state, um and is denounced now like everyone who does that as a as, a, as an anti semite and stuff, but he was. You know, he's a member of this kind of coalition, this anti-war coalition. And he was kind of commenting on the fact that su- supplying the Ukraine with these weapons, whether they're using or not, or whether they're actually being sent out to shell companies and then sent on to, you know, kind of arms dealers around the world. But if they don't do that, if they do go to the Ukraine, it's merely kind of prolonging this war. And it's going to, it is leading us into a very, very dangerous state at the moment. We're probably closer to a possible World War Three than we have since the Bay of Pigs crisis back in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, And the way he was responded to, you know, he's one of these people, probably like you, who gets, you know, kind of public figures, who get appallingly trolled. But the way that people were responding to him wasn't, you know, I disagree with you because I think, you know, we need to defend Ukraine or, or whatever, whatever the reason was. It was this visceral loathing and hatred, people saying, you disgust me. Or you are a Putin apologist, or you are Russian propaganda. These kinds of reactions, and this is not coming from kids, it's not coming from even Twitter trolls, it's coming from the adults and people like you and I. Um, that that knee jerk way of thinking, there's a lot of things behind it. Social media has been incredibly influential, I think, decisive in creating that form of consciousness. But we're not always on social media, but we are, as these statistics reveal, we are always on our mobile phone. And smartphones are changing our consciousness, I think, whereby that is the limit of thinking that most people have got. Chris Williamson says we should not spend all this money in arming Ukraine in a war, you know, dubious concern. And their reaction is like, "Well, well, let's debate that. Well, let's think about that even. It's simply to have these, you disgust me. And I'm I'm very, very struck by what has come out of the COVID period, that two years of lockdown is not simply um, this dismantling of our democracy, which we've been kind of talking about through this. It's not just about a destruction of the checks and balances and the institutional kind of barriers to this takeover that's going on. It's created something new. And I think it is new. Obviously, it goes back a long way because, you know, we were talking about all these things have a long genesis, but there are qualitative shifts, which I think we've entered into now. And the way that we're reacting to the Ukraine situation, the way we're reacting to the supposed environmental crisis and the way we were we were taught to react to COVID, there is a continuum between these things. And it can now be it now is being um sent out to colonize all our thinking about anything at all. If anyone, if you say to anyone, well, what do you think about the WHO's pandemic treaty? Do you think it's taking away our sovereignty? No, I can imagine the kind of reactions that are gonna happen to that. What about digital IT? What about central bank digital currency? What about these fundamental changes to our social contract? I don't think people are capable or have the desire anymore. It's not about capability. it's not about intellectual capability, it's about patterns of behavior modes of thinking of, of actual consciousness which have been really changed and the way that i mean i don't want to reduce you have got to be careful with this not to i've got to be careful not to reduce the population of the uk or of the west to twitter <laughs> which is a kind of a lunatic mm. asylum but it is a very influential lunatic asylum and the the way that people are thinking on twitter the way that people are thinking in social media there is a continuum now between COVID, the environmental and the Ukraine situation. And that worries me a lot. We haven't simply dismantled what we had before. We are creating, as I think is, is, is your you, Horari, I think if I got his name right, the ideologue of the fourth industrial revolution, we are creating new minds, new forms of consciousness. And that worries me very much.
0: I can give you an example yeah. of this. So um, I live um in a, a rented house on a in a in a on a on a, a country estate and so one knows the people who live you know the the, the fellow um tenants of the estate and there was a, there was one the one guy lives on the estate who you know i've lived here for 12 years who was very friendly when we arrived we'd known his you know his, his daughter played with my daughter, and and, and um, we've got shared interests. You know, he was he was in, into the music industry, and I was a, a music critic for some Ooh. time. So we, we, we used to have, have big old chats. Anyway, um, my my son went to chat to him the other day, and he said, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to talk to your father. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and yeah. it turned out this was this was because of my disgraceful inexcusable position on the ukraine and and my 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 son said to me you know are you are you a putin supporter and i said it's not yeah. like that yeah. it's it, it, i'm i'm much more a plague on all their houses and i, I don't think that the yeah. analysis that we we hear in in, in the media about but the ukraine is is actually accurate and i remembered yeah. I I know how this 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 feud that this guy where he picked this up. I'd gone to this gone to this party, um, and in 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 the village, and tried engaging two people there, two sort of local bigwigs. One of them I think was the deputy, <coughs> lieutenant, whatever the lord lieutenant of the county, and the other <laughs> one was a was yeah. you know, a title had a hereditary an title, and we were talking about Ukraine and stuff, and. I pointed out them that, 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 that in, in 2014, the color revolution had been yeah. sta- staged, that the democratically elected president of Ukraine had been ousted by Soros funded CIA backed revolutionaries who also happened to be Nazi. The stuff yeah. that one knows yeah. if one does a, a modicum of, modicum of of, 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 of research. And they looked at me with a mixture of, contempt and like I was the most ridiculous yeah, person yeah. on earth and they asked me you know so w- what are your sources for this information and I was thinking well what are your sources for your information yeah. you, you, you you've just you've just been brainwashed by this massive thinking, I was thinking about this very angry man who will never talk to me yeah. again and I'm thinking he's never going to question the sources of information. He's never going to consider, stop to consider the fact that when he drives through the next door village, there is a blue and yellow flag on the on 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 the wall, and, and that this is exactly the same programming that in in the run up to the First World War, when when Britain and, and yeah. Germany were really natural yeah. allies we had a lot in yeah. common, including our, our the sort of little flag, when people were suddenly killing Dachshunds because, because, <laughs> no, they, because They're German. And, and that we are, as you say, easily programmed. By the way, I wanted to, to point out: look behind you. Look at look at look at Marilyn's hair, and look at her eye shadow. Look
1: at <laughs> subliminal. I'm subliminally bringing you over.
0: You've been you've been subtly- You are basically a Zelensky
1: Zelensky Uh, Yes, definitely. Yeah, me and Zelensky, we get on well. We used to hang out in New York in the seventies with Andy Warhol. Oh, I those.
0: I tell you what, the the the, the photographs of
1: Zelensky. I don't know if they're true, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. Um. First of all, I want to say, what a disgusting thing for your neighbour to say to your son. What a what a cowardly and revolting thing to say. If he's got a problem with you, you should have the have the the courage and decency to come up and tell you at least to your face and not try to embarrass or humiliate your son against you. That's typical unfortunately of the mm. behavior of these people and it's disgraceful. So I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, yeah. I think the <clears throat> two points, one of the thesis of my, you know, my, my first book, the road to fascism is that we're, we're moving to a fascist society and, and to try and learn from this, the, the past and why it's justified to say that. And I think the, Apart from the flawed, you know, whether someone disagrees or doesn't or doesn't agree, disagrees or agrees with you over one's view about what exactly is going on in Ukraine, which I'm willing to bet most of the people on Twitter didn't even know where Ukraine was or was even at a war, you know, up until uh, we were told we were, you know, going to a war with them or something. Whether um, whether or not you agree with it, the the not just the willingness, the eagerness, the joy, which Almost everyone has taken, and particularly liberals, in this process of dehumanising the Russian people and their culture, yeah. I find utterly abhorrent. I, 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 yes. I lived in the Soviet Union when I was a child, and I've always had a close kind of affiliation. And I'm again like you; I'm not, you know. Um, uh, Putin is definitely the lesser of two evils, if you like, but that doesn't mean mm. he's not. he's not. This is something that I, you know, that I, I want to live in, the, the, mm. in in Russia or China or anything like that. But this dehumanisation, um, the the blanket ban on you know Russian athletes performing, or you know cancelling shows by Tchaikovsky, or um, you know the, the the burning or the pulping of books by Dostoevsky and and Tolstoy in the Ukraine, and turning them into um, into toilet roll for their troops, which for me has very very dark echoes of the use made of of, of killed. Jewish people um, in the in, you know in concentration camps and so on the kind of the reharvesting if you like of of a of a kind of a, of a of a dehumanized people that was literally done with Jewish bodies with the hair and kind of the soap and stuff like that but this is sort of similar they actually haven't done it to the human the, the Russians yet but there is a process of dehumanization going on now which is very very fascist in its origins and its effects and the fact that. These people who they may disagree, they may think actually, no, the Ukraine, you know, has to come, he has to take back the Donbass and stuff like that. What happens next, then, whatever, you know, the the, Russia is the, you know, they, whatever their view of it, that doesn't mean engaging with this utterly disgraceful, that doesn't really describe it, dehumanization of everything to do with Russia. I find that very, 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 uh, yeah, awful. awful. I don't really know how to say it strong enough without swearing. It disgusts me. And I'm appalled. That so many people in this country and across the West have fallen into doing that—they haven't really fallen into it; they've embraced it. It's the same thing. It's the they've same thing again. It. It's a continuation of what happened in the COVID. It's the enemy within. The enemy within, with people like you and me who didn't observe lockdown, who didn't get injected and stuff. Now the, the now the so enemy I mean, is, is I- the Russians.
0: I just wanted to agree with you so strongly on that point. I think one of the most upsetting experiences I've ever had on social media was about 18 months ago, I think, when footage emerged, proving pretty much beyond reasonable doubt that Ukrainian militia, probably the Azov Brigade, were killing Russian prisoners in cold blood. And there were people i I mean it's hard to be sure because i think a lot of this stuff is seeded by things like 77th brigade there were a lot of sort of propaganda operators on but i think that there were genuine people who were applauding this and saying things like serves them right for invading invading sovereign territory and i was thinking hang on a second these are just boys. They could be, they could be our sons, I, regardless of the rights and wrongs of the conflict. That, that, that's that's separate, but they're conscripts. In 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 some cases, they they didn't choose to be there, and whatever happened to the Geneva Convention? What? How can you be gloating about uh, about this? And even though I, I differ from most of my family on 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 this issue, I was very pleased the other day that my son was looking at the paper you know, about two or three days ago. And there was a, a picture of, I think, Rishi, embra- I don't know why I call his first name, <laughs> Suna yeah. embracing Zelensky. You know, they, they, they all seem to be on the verge of yeah. having sex with yes. him. All the, all these There's a strange erotic he, going like, on between novel. him
1: and Western leaders, yeah, it, isn't
0: there? And, and it was all sort of feel-good copy, and it isn't this great, fantastic. but my son pointed out that that you read further down and it was to celebrate the fact that um suicide drones were being British made suicide yeah. drones were being sent out to 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 to, to, to fight Putin I think hang on a second so we are being invited to gloat over the fact that we are sending out this weapon which presumably when you're in a, in a, in a a, a trench trying to yeah, avoid yeah, being blown to pieces yeah. by the enemy's yeah. artillery and these drones come and they sort of dive down and they they yeah. kill you they blow you to pieces so like the yeah. whizzbangs that that blew people to pieces in the in the first yeah. world war which we have been encouraged to think of as a yeah. bad thing and you know about the yeah. horror and pity of war suddenly we're being encouraged to gloat yeah. and yeah, celebrate and you, isn't this Yeah, yeah
1: the I don't it, it's there's, there's kind of I mean, we had, we had stuff like this. I remember in the, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, when you had, um, they used a sort of a surgical, a medical metaphor for, what was it called? Kind of sur- was it surgical bombing? It wasn't quite that. but It was something like that, where you had footage shown on the national TV of stealth bombers going across and sort of going, beep, 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 and then dropping a bomb on a building. And you knew the people in the building. This bomb was going to be killing people. And I thought that was a level yeah. of, you know, because the Vietnam War was so visceral, you know, this time the media wanted to take control over this, but it they, they was still mm. kind of quite abstract in a way. It was a building. You didn't actually see people being killed. But now you, it's impossible to go on Twitter without seeing one of these drones hovering over a, a man in a trench who, who we told is a Russian and they drop a bomb on him and he dies. It's a snuff. It's a, it's a snuff snuff yes, And people are cheering it on. They're, they're gloating over it, as you say. Now that, that's showing, that's demonstration of a level of, of, being, of being made inured to, well, it's not about being inured to death, because it's not death, it's an image of death. It's about this process of dehumanizing other people. Um, and that concerns me very much. Maybe something else I want to get to about this. Um, I saw the other day, you, I think you wrote a very nice, very generous article in Conservative Woman, when you would questioning the very existence of, of a, of a, of, a of, of a virus or of a pandemic and so on. And you cited my article um, um, lies damn lies and statistics manufacturing the crisis, which is in the second volume, another plug here, the second volume of this. And it's a, yeah, it's, nice. a, it's, a, it's a good article. It's one of my best ones, I think, in which I go through kind of the figures that showed that very, very few people, you know, that most of the people um, who died in that first year died because as we said, of lockdown and so on, I republished it recently because, when the um, I was going to call them the Hancock tapes, but the um, uh, what was you know the the the, the text messages Matt Hancock and and the other they all came out, didn't they? And the mm-hmm. Telegraph sort of started publishing them, and everyone was like, "Oh my God, this was terrible!" They were kind of they were manufacturing things and they were lying to us. And I just thought, if you really think what these are exposing is the full level of the lies or the manufacture of this, you really need to read my article because it kind of grazed the surface. The, 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 the levels yeah, of yeah. manufacturing, if you went, Limited, yeah. far, far greater than that. So I thought, I'll sort of a slightly concentrated or condensed version of the article, and I published it in UK column. Um, and I thought I would preface it with um, you know, something a little bit different. And I, I wanted to talk about this idea of, of manufacturing, how we manufacture things. And I, I wanted to make analogies between the manufacturing of the pandemic and the manufacturing of what's going on in Ukraine now, and I went back to um, the first Gulf War, um, and I don't know if you remember, but when that happened, um, the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, who was one of these people very closely associated with postmodernism, he he published this, this series of articles called "The Gulf War Isn't Happening," the Gulf War, you know, won't happen, isn't happening, didn't happen. Three articles which he then put together in a book, and people were outraged at the time. They were like. How could you possibly say this? You know, we we see every night on the TV these terrible, terrible battle going on between you know the the, the yeah, Saddam Hussein's yeah. imperial guard and all this sort of stuff. And his point was that yeah. this wasn't a battle; this was a massacre by the most powerful nation on earth with its with its um, with its its coalition against a very small impoverished nation. And this wasn't this great battle called Desert Storm at all. Was that right? one? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm mixing them up. Yeah. Um, this was a spectacle which had been created by the government and the media for various, you know, to, to justify the West going in and basically stealing all the the oil and taking over, destabilizing the Middle East and taking over Iraq, which is where we are now in that place. Um, <clears throat> now, I remember when when that came out, when those books came out, the intelligentsia, if you want to call them that, at least the bloody academics, and probably, you know, some of the journalists as well, they were persuaded by this. It's, a, it's an important thesis about... The nature of reality and the nature the nature of you know Baudrillard's term is the simulacrum the simulation of reality mm. which had a lot of purchase on a lot of people's minds with you know the right the, the the beginning of new digital technologies and the you know the augmentation of reality and stuff today we've gone way 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 beyond those capacities you know we we know that most of the time we're seeing images of Zelensky; they're actually 3d modeling projecting holograms and stuff the people who've produced that technology and produce the images of you know happily advertising it. If you go onto Google and you put Zelensky hologram, you'll have someone boasting about it, saying, we well, can't be everywhere, so we'll we'll create him. So it's quite openly, they're quite it feels openly like now it. talking about the manufacturing of propaganda around this battle. What we're not told, what we're told we can't do though, is even though we are manipulating, we, the media, the governments, the people who control of this of this 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 proxy war are manipulating our opinion about it and our perception of it, we are not therefore, on the the basis of that, able to question the foundations for that. They're saying, well, yes, we are manipulating your perception of that because we're right. It's very similar in the COVID thing. Yes, maybe we are exaggerating the deaths a little bit. Maybe we are being slightly overzealous in, um, in locking you down. Maybe these, uh, these vaccines haven't gone through all the, you know, procedures of taking care of them, but people are dying. So we have to do it. Um, I'm really struck that after all these years, you know, that the, that the Gulf war was a long time ago. It's 30 odd years Mm. ago. And yet we seem to have learned nothing. And all the intellectuals, all the academics, who probably got copies of Baudrillard's the Gulf war didn't happen on their bookshelf. They seem to have forgotten everything we know about war and politics and the spectacle and how this Ukraine war. It's, it's almost like the, Ukraine, the war in the Ukraine is the first war we've ever witnessed. It's, it's quite of extraordinary. We've learned, mm-hmm. we've learned nothing from the Gulf War. We've known nothing from the Iraqi War. We've learned nothing from the First World War or the, or the Second World War. We seem to have learned nothing at all. We're told once again that this is a sort of an unprecedented situation. And we must never look back on history to learn anything about this. And this there's a kind of a willing idiocy, a willing kind of erasure erasure of memory, of critical faculties, of of as I was saying before, of reflective thought to think, maybe I should look into this. You know, these people saying to you, where do you get this information that actually there was a political coup in 2014? Well just bloody Google it, you know, have a look at it, look at it up. It's not hard to find it. Go on, go on and yeah. hear um Vicky, what's her name? Talking with uh, you know the um, the uh, uh, the the you know about setting up the new you know choosing the new cabinet for the Ukraine in in two thousand nineteen and stuff. Yes, this stuff is all out here.
0: But but the, but or, or read the, the Guardian <laughs> before the narrative before the narrative yeah. changed. I mean, all this stuff was yeah. out was out there. It's, it's not it's and not and hidden. This is not about
1: data and information. It's about hmm. people's desire or disposition or capability, or, again, going back to this term consciousness, these new technologies and programs are about creating a permanently distracted state of consciousness, which I guess what we're trying to do in doing podcasts like this, and in my case, your case, writing articles, me writing articles and publishing books, is to try to get people to be a bit more reflective about this and not respond to everyone who disagrees with them, or who's got an alternative view, with the same process of dehumanization which is being used to justify what looks like a declaration of war against one of the great superpowers. I mean, I don't know how victory over Russia. What does that mean? What does that possibly mean? I mean, what does that what what could that possibly mean? And yet nobody's asking that question. You know, if we if we if as uh, Ursula von der Leyen is saying, we will not stop until we defeat Russia. What does that actually mean? What do these terms mean? They terrify me because I can't imagine what a defeated Russia would look like perhaps at the top of a big mushroom cloud, but there's no discussion about that. Nobody's considering about that. They're just, you're, you know, is that very unpleasant man said to your son, you're a Putin apologist if you don't, if you don't think, if you dare to think about what those phrases mean.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, I was thinking, you know, that the the guy on the estate would would clearly happily see my son's going out to to be cannon fodder, to, to be in the meat grinder in this, for this pointless war. And I'm thinking, well, no, wait a second. What? Well, who's who's benefiting from this? Where's it? Where's it all going? Yeah. By the way, Simon, um, if I may say so, you, you must have been a very good lecturer um, <laughs> when you were.
1: Uh, what were you? What were you teaching? I taught in the history and theory of art. My 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 particular yeah. area, my specialty was the 20s and 30s, which is why I've got a kind of a background in this this kind of period. But I also taught 19th century stuff as well. I was a good lecturer. I wasn't a very good academic, though, <laughs> which are two, two different things, yeah. two different things.
0: But so you, so you would have covered the way that art was used in the, in the Bolshevik Revolution oh, yeah, yeah, as definitely. well. Yes. Because I saw, I saw, there was a very good good show at the at the um, the Royal Academy a few years ago on, on, on that. Did you, yeah, did there you was see that? there
1: was a there was a range of art uh, uh, exhibitions on the. It was the hundredth anniversary of the, of the Bolshevik Revolution, and there was exhibitions at the at the Hayward at the British the British Library, I think, at the Royal Academy and at the Design Museum as well. And I went to all of them. Um, if you want to, there's a very long article I wrote about them on, on architectural social housing. Yeah, I found it fascinating. I found, it, I found it very interesting about the, the UK, and I guess certainly the UK had decided to to, to mark this historic event, hundred years since this event, which kind of changed the twentieth century, um, and how they would how they would kind of do that, how they would go about it. I mean, the Royal Academy show was absolutely extraordinary because it was mostly funded by Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs, who, as you can imagine didn't want to celebrate the, uh, the
0: Soviet Union or the Bolshevik Revolution. Well, I, I, I tell you what my, my take home from it was, and I think it's quite germane to what we were talking about today, which was just how few people there were involved in the revolution. I mean, how they they managed to turn this vast, vast country with this huge population, how they managed to yeah. suborn the people in such short space and just take control of the system. And a lot of it was through yeah, yeah. propaganda.
1: We yeah. talked about this last time, I think, because we're probably coming to the end here. When when we come yeah. to what can we do, You know, we've discussed in certain depth um, the, the buying up of the checks and balances, the institutional checks and balances to this dismantling of our democracy. We've talked about the role of ideology in convincing people to not question Extraordinary as it seems, people whose very identity about, is about being questioning, academics, intellectuals, journalists, youth, young people, don't seem to want to question the state anymore. Um, I think ideology, I don't have any faith in Parliament. We kind of discussed it. We discussed it as a, as a kind of a spectacle, Punch and Judy show. Um, it's there to just to conv- to make us think that it actually is a, a, a forum for, for change, uh, somewhere where our political agency is expressed. Still think, I think it still does lie in the, in the realm of ideology. Um, we discussed this last time, the takeover, this new great reset is not merely being done through regulations and laws and legislation. It's not merely a top-down thing. Um, the next level that I think is coming along is the level of programs and technologies, digital IDs, central bank digital currency, the new agendas, the kind of the agenda 2030, which is being it has been around for a while, but it's being implemented with greater violence, if I think, and autocracy. Um, but there is still a battle that we can fight, which is what we're trying to do today, which is to get people to restart thinking. It's not keep on thinking anymore, is it? It's to start thinking again and to, I don't know, to have some, to reclaim our minds because it's our minds we started with this. It's our minds. Thereafter, thereafter, the body is merely a vehicle for the mind. If they can control our bodies, for those of us who can't be taken over, central bank digital currency is the next best thing. That's biopower. It doesn't matter whether I agree with central bank mm. digital currency or digital ID. If it's a condition of my citizenship, my ability to get money or travel around, they've got control of my body. But that will only happen if they get enough people get into their minds, and that's what they've done at the moment. The absolute Um, penetration of environmental fundamentalism into our parliaments, our education system, our culture, our media is terrifying. Um, And what's most terrifying about it is that nobody has got the courage, it seems, nobody who's in those systems has got the courage to stand up and say, hold on, we need to start thinking about this. The same way that they won't think about the Ukraine or they won't think about what happened with the COVID crisis. So yeah. yeah, keep thinking, start yeah. thinking again, and that's the field of ideology which people like you, and it's, it's kind of the only thing we've got left in a way. We've got to fight in it, and it is important yeah. because to go back to your initial point, <clears throat> the way the Bolsheviks were able to take over, and whatever you think of, you know, I've got some sympathy with them at the beginning, but by 1929, Stalin had set up a totalitarian system, and the role in all aut- autocratic, authoritarian, tyrannical, or totalitarian systems, the role of ideology is at the very, very center of it. It's at the very center of it. So that's our battleground, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the other thing I'd add to that is that is that we've got to just preach, preach, <laughs> bro. I mean, which is what you've been doing and what I do. I see it as my, like, whenever my brief forays into teaching, I've always enjoyed communication yeah. because I am a communicator and you know, I'm, I'm just lucky, blessed to have those skills. But I was talking to this I was talking to this um uh, this girl the other day who's been involved in the resistance and she joined the various campaign groups. I mentioned this on a previous podcast um, and it was various of her campaign groups had run out of steam you know, the, the issues they were fighting for whatever reason. and I said, well, you think back to Jesus and the disciples. how did he spread the word? did, did he say to his disciples, I, we're going to form this action committee." <laughs> And it's going to be called the Let's Spread Christianity Action Committee. And this is what we stand for. No, he didn't. It, the, the, each one of those disciples went and spoke to 12 other people. And, the, and the, those 12 spoke to 12 people and so and so on and so forth. It's spread by word of mouth. And I, I find this, that, that I've never been a joiner. I've never wanted to join any of these, these campaign groups. I think get co-opted very easily. Um, I've never wanted to join join some kind of collective. I think collectives are the problem. We've just got to go out there and and and, and speak <laughs> the word and and just do yeah. what we're doing because that's how the message gets
1: a great yeah. Communication. Um, I know you always like to talk about, well, not always, but um, you, you did last time talked about um, of oh, oh, Jesus. And recently, you'll be happy to know that I've been writing a new book, and it's not about COVID. Or it's not about totalitarianism. It's something <laughs> positive. I'm about to publish it actually. Um, it's called notes to poetry, because um, people have been saying I've been very aware that when I'm criticising the COVID faithful or the environmental fundamentalists with these apocalyptic visions of the future that which they're using to get everyone scared and therefore compliant, I know that i myself are in danger of falling into a similar kind of apocalyptic form of thinking by saying if we don't combat cbdc or digital id we're going to be living in a totalitarian world it's a it's a difficult line i want to make people aware as much as i can as an individual what the threats are but i also don't i also want them to want them to i think all of us want to do this we want to have a positive vision of the future as well as i've said before and i'll repeat it one of our greatest weapons against the enemies of humanity who are winning at the moment is this dystopian vision of the future that they have for us, which we're told, okay, this may not be great, but it's better than the world falling under you know rising sea levels or or you know contagion or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We need to use that by painting a more positive picture. Now, to get back to your point, um, my notes to poetry is a selection of writings on poetry, because I think poetry is very important to me. It's my very important to me, I think it's important yeah. to us. I think the values of poetry are those which are being erased. Um, And my book is about why we should defend those values in a way. But I start off with the first reading I do of poetry is the reading of the Gospels, um, the New Testament. And there's a wonderful reading itself of the Gospels by my old friend Friedrich Nietzsche. And he says, the Gospels is a manual for, I don't know, how to attain the kingdom of God in the here below. Nietzsche has, has no, no truck with the idea that the kingdom of God is in an afterlife. He says it's a manual for how to bring about the kingdom of God, if you want to use that as a, a metonym for a better life, a just world, and a, a better way to react and live with each other. Um, and he did it through his parables, but he also did it through his behavior through his practice as a human being, which was then Mm. given as a model. He constantly says to his disciples, go forth and spread my word. Um, I'm not a religious man myself, but I'm very fascinated with uh, religious thought. I'm very fascinated with the gospels. I think there's a lot of good in it. Um, I agree with you, organizations, particularly organizations on the left, I can warn you probably know more about those than you do. They once they form, they spend a lot of time thinking about what they are and what, how they should operate, and what are the parameters, and who we are, and they, they, they kind of disappear down their own kind of black hole, as it were. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's good to form into groups, but ultimately, people become better citizens by their own behavior, their own practices, and they need models of that, I think. We all need to be a model for each other, of behaving towards each other with humanity, and intelligence, and tolerance, all these other things you could associate with various figures throughout history that we look up to and love, love. definitely love um so that's what my next book is about <laughs> well no, I, that sounds great Simon. I, look for, I really look
0: forward to reading it because like guess yeah we, we could do a whole other podcast on poetry oh great my, okay. my things as well learning learning poetry um but um, thank you so much. I really, so where can people find you? Where can people read your stuff? Um, the easiest
1: way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at at SimonElmer2022. That's my second Twitter handle because the first one was um, erased by Twitter um, for obvious reasons. I've also got a very long um, name for a website. It's called architects, plural, Social architectsforsocialhousing.co.uk. And you can find a lot of my writings on there. And you could also find ways to get access to these books as well. Maybe, James, I could send you a few links to the latest books and you could put them on this. No,
0: well, de- definitely send me some links yeah, and we'll put those probably in the an easy way to
1: make people it to for Yeah, thank you. For, yeah, I yeah, really appreciate good. you having that's me on the board. Before, I've done quite a lot of these podcasts since I published my first book, but everyone always comes up to me at meetings and said, I saw you on the Delling pod and you were rather good. <laughs> so thank you, for, thank you for having me back well, here
0: i can confirm that you were rather <laughs> good again um you, you know, thank you it. so much it only remains for me to say um uh please if you want early access actually this is a better way of putting it because rather than sounding like i'm pleading but look uh you, you can get my stuff for free but if you want to give money to the cause or if you want to get early access to my stuff you'll find me on patreon Subscribestar, locals um substack you can buy me a coffee. Buy me a coffee if you don't want to commit to anything deeper than that. But, you know, it's, it's occasionally nice tipping somebody for stuff that you enjoy. And I know you enjoy my stuff.